The Words in Winter podcast is brought to you by Words in Winter, an annual literary and arts festival held in August each year in the Hepburn Shire and surrounding districts. You can find out more by going to wordsinwinter.com. afternoon. Welcome. Kevin Childs is my name. I'm a co-director of the festival. Um, we meet today on the traditional lands of the Jajawarang people and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and the elders from other communities who may be here today. Um, I think this is going to be one of the highlights of the festival so you're in for a treat. Ross is an historian and biographer, has written extensively about Australia's involvement in World War I. His, as you might see, his biographies include the award-winning Pompey Elliot and Will Dyson, Australia's radical genius, which are here. He also wrote the commissioned ALP centenary history, The Light on the Hill, and another political history, so monstrous a tra travesty, Chris Watson and the world's first national Labor government. In his most recent book, Farewell, Dear People, Biographies of Australia's Lost Generation, was awarded the Prime Minister's Prize for Australian History. Uh, the wartime letters and diaries of Pompey Elliot, Australia's most famous fighting general, are exceptionally forthright. They're also remarkably illuminating about his volatile emotions. He not only wrote frankly about what happened to him and his, the men he was commanding, he was also frank about what he felt about both. And having arranged a no-secrets pact with his wife for their correspondence before he left in 1914, he stuck to that agreement throughout the conflict. And moreover, he expressed himself with vivid candour in his diaries and other correspondence. He wrote rapidly and fluently with fertile imagery, a flair for simile and an engaging turn of phrase. Remarkably, his extraordinary letters to his young children turned even the Western Front into a bedtime story, hard to imagine. He was prominent in iconic battles and many con controversies. He was wounded at the Gallipoli Landing, and four of his men were awarded the Victoria Cross for conspicuous, conspicuous bravery at Lone Pine. No one was more instrumental than Pompey in turning looming defeat into victory at both Polygon Wood and Villas Britanneux. No Australian general was more revered, revered by those he led or more famous outside his own command. As one critic said, there's a new readership can now learn of an exceptional military leader and a larger-than-life personality because of his power of his uh, expression, what an honest diarist, correspondent and report writer, a gathering of pure-grade historical evidence. Without further ado, I give you Ross McMullen. Uh, thanks very much, Kevin. Um, now, this new book, Pompey Elliot at War, in his own words, that I'm talking about today is, is that one. Um, it's, it is different from my previous biography of Pompey, that is your top flyer that I've, that I've handed out, which is this one. The, the older book came out in 2002. Now, the older, the previous book, on Pompey was a life and times story covering his whole life. But this new book is not a biography, it's not life and times, and it's not his whole life. The focus is on this celebrated Australian's experience of World War I in his own words. 
I'm not aware of it's this is a big statement, but I'm very confident that it's true. I'm not aware of another book quite like this one for two main reasons, the way I've gone about it and the way Pompey expressed himself. The way I've gone about it is to go beyond Pompey's rich letters and diaries. I've assembled his words from wherever I could find them, not just his personal letters and diaries, but also his amazing battle reports, his orders, recommendations for awards, military correspondence, official formation diaries, and any other source that illuminated what he wrote and said. So that's what he said, as well as what he wrote, where this can be authenticated. I then selected excerpts from these various sources and arranged them in a sequence that becomes like a narrative. Between these excerpts, I've inserted some brief explanatory links to provide connection and flow, but the fundamental principle underpinning the book is the subtitle, In His Own Words. And what remarkable words they are. I can still remember how stunned I was when I first read Pompey's remarkable letters and diaries almost 40, that's four zero, 40 years ago. They were so arrestingly candid and vivid that they bowled me over. And the aim of this book is to enable others to have a similar experience. But first, I should, for those who may not be 100% familiar with Pompey, just do a brief rundown of what was special about him. Now, Harold Elliot, universally known as Pompey, was Australia's most famous fighting general in World War I. A charismatic, controversial and highly successful commander, he was exceptional in intellect, genuineness and resolve. An accomplished tactician and astonishingly brave, he was renowned for never sending anyone anywhere he was not prepared to go himself. A fierce disciplinarian with an explosive temper, he was exuberant, wholehearted and utterly dedicated. Pompey identified himself with the formations he commanded and the men he led. He formed a strong bond with them and cared deeply about what happened to them. Elliot went right through the war and his leadership was compelling from the outset. He commanded the 7th Battalion at Gallipoli, where he was wounded at the landing on the first morning. At the, and then at Lone Pine, under his vigorous leadership, four of his men were awarded the VC. He led the 15th Brigade at the Western Front, where he was prominent in notable battles such as Fromel, Polygon Wood and Villa Bretina, together with numerous other engagements, incidents and controversies. Lots of controversies. No Australian general was more revered by those he led or more famous outside his own command. That's another big statement. Yeah? True. No Australian commander was more revered by those he led or more famous outside his own command. It was not just the achievements, awards and accolades that made Elliot special, though there were plenty of each. His fame had as much to do with his character and personality, with the style of his leadership as much as with its results. Pompey's tempestuousness generated a host of anecdotes that amused his men and disconcerted his superiors. He was frank and forthright in speech and correspondence, not one for pretense or artifice, and he was no good at guile anyway. 
Pompey's emotions are starkly evident in his wartime letters. He not only wrote frankly about what happened to him and the men he was commanding, he was also frank about what he felt about what happened to him and the men he was commanding, as, as Kevin mentioned in the intro. Now, Pompey was adamant that the war had to be fought and had to be won, and he realised that casualties were inevitable, but again and again he became extremely upset when they eventuated, that these appalling losses had devastating consequences for Australia is frequently evident in his letters. World War I remains the most terrible event in Australia's existence since European settlement. And then there's the style of Pompey's words. Again, as Kevin emphasised, he wrote rapidly and fluently with fertile imagery, a flair for simile and an engaging turn of phrase. Uh, some examples just to give you a flavour. These, <coughs> these trench mortar boys are there night and day like a cat watching a mouse hole, he reported in 1917. In 1918, when he proclaimed an order that the next officer caught looting would be summarily and publicly hanged and looting ceased as a result, Pompey, who was a solicitor in civilian life, concluded that none seemed inclined to make of themselves a test case. After his machine gunners broke up a German attack, the survivors of the enemy column concluded that they had urgent business elsewhere. When his men were victorious in another engagement, he noted that enemy infantry were heading for the skyline at a pace that suggested they were making straight for Berlin to tell the Kaiser about it. Unimpressed by German tactics in 1918, he observed that the whole military ability of the Teutonic race has advanced no plan beyond the instinct of an infant grasshopper. He sent an officer to a vital position at Lone Pine with a memorable farewell. Goodbye, Simons. I don't expect to see you again, but we must not lose that post. Now, what Lieutenant Simons then did at that critical post was so outstanding that he was awarded the VC. Pompey would roar at incompetent officers. Call yourself a soldier. You're not even a water to a soldier's ass. And he would reassure his wife, Kate, that he'd stopped swearing. Darling, I would pass for a Sunday school teacher anywhere at present. His letters and diaries are lively and absorbing, not only because of his turn of phrase, but also because he was so outspoken especially in controversy, and Pompey was often in controversy. Newly promoted to command a brigade, okay, so he commands the 7th Battalion at Gallipoli, throughout, throughout Gallipoli, promoted to the next level up after Gallipoli as brigade commander. Now, when he's promoted to that level, the heads who appoint him to that promotion to command a brigade, they're the ones who decide who his four battalion commanders are. And he's not happy. He reckons three of them are no good. So he writes back, straight after he's been promoted, and he writes, Do you desire an efficient brigade or will any old thing do? Unwise British dispositions in a vital sector 
forbade us to hope that any intelligent military action could reasonably be expected from any of them from the Corps commander down. That covers quite a few soldiers. Pompey declared after the stunningly successful counterattack at Villa Bretina that he had to fight everybody to get permission to do it, and when it was done, they were all breaking their necks to get or share the credit. Moreover, he nailed General Birdwood as being full of a pretended affability that he imagines deceives us, full of a pretended affability that he imagines deceives us. When this mask disappeared during an argument, Elliot described how Birdwood commenced to chatter and gibber like a demented monkey and then flounced out with a retinue of commanders like a cock wren in his harem. Frank and forthright. Pompey yearned to stay connected to his wife and kids. Maintaining a loving relationship with a spouse you don't see for five years is no easy matter, obviously. <clears throat> Especially when you spend much of that time distracted by danger and the acute awareness that you're responsible for the lives of thousands. Pompey certainly tried his utmost. Nearly half of our wedded life we will have been separated soon, dear. He wrote in January 1918, it is very sad what we have missed of each other. And they were not to be reunited for another 18 months. As Kevin said, uh, Pompey and Kate arranged a mutual no secrets pact for their correspondence before he left with the AIF in 1914 and he certainly adhered to that agreement. He felt motivated to make his prolific correspondence to Kate as illuminating as possible about his experiences and emotions. This was important to them both. He wanted to tell Kate what he was going through and she wanted to share his vicissitudes with him. And Pompey's, yes, you've done well to avoid the rain. I'll keep going despite the additional a little bit of noise. And Pompey's correspondence to his young children was extraordinary. Surely no general in any combatant nation in this war managed to turn the conflict into a kind of bedtime story in the way that he regularly did in his letters to his children. And during the dreadful 1916-17 winter at the Western Front, which the locals said was the worst they'd had for 40 years, Pompey wrote to his four-year-old son, Neil, describing the conditions and the unveiling of the latest military novelty, the tank, and referring to himself as Dida, which his young children called him. So at their place, it wasn't Dad or Daddy, it's Dida. Now remember, just keep in mind as I read this out, um, end of 1916, worst winter in France for 40 years, the recipient of this letter is four years of age. Since I wrote to you before, we got a lot of big wagons like traction engines and put guns in them and ran them bumpity bump up against the old Kaiser's wall and knocked a great big hole in it and caught thousands and thousands of the Kaiser's naughty soldier men and we killed a lot of them and more we put in jail so they couldn't be naughty anymore. But then it started to rain and rain and snow and hail 
and the ground got all boggy and the wagons got stuck in the mud and the old Kaiser has such heaps and heaps of soldiers that he sent up a lot more and thinned them out where the wall wasn't broken and started to build up another big wall to stop us going any further. It is very, very cold here and the Jack Frost here is not a nice little Jack Frost who just pinches your fingers so you can run to a fire to warm them, but a great big bitey Jack Frost. And he pinches the toes and fingers of some of Didar's poor soldiers so terribly that he pinches them right off. Isn't that terrible? And the naughty old Kaiser burnt down every little house all around here and Didar's soldiers have to sleep out in the mud or dig holes in the ground like rabbits to sleep in. And all the trees are blown to pieces by the big guns and there's no wood to make fires and Dido's soldiers have to make fires of coal and the wagons are all stuck in the mud so Dido's soldiers have to carry it through all the mud and everything they eat and wear is to be carried too. And Dido's soldiers get so dreadfully tired they can hardly work or walk at all. Isn't that old Kaiser a naughty old man to cause all this trouble? Now goodbye dear little laddie. Give dear old mum a kiss and tell her Dida's coming home soon and that you will grow up soon and you won't let any old Kaiser come near her. So the four-year-old has got very clear instructions about how he's to conduct himself as the man of the house. Pompey's favourite wartime anecdote concerned an incident that occurred when his battalion on the march near Cairo, so this is training before Gallipoli, passed a hawker's male donkey that was taking a conspicuous interest in a nearby female of the species. And in the interests of uh, historical veracity, I need to uh, emphasise that this male donkey's interest was extremely conspicuous. Very conspicuous indeed. I think we're on the same page. This is, this is what Pompey wrote about that. Some of the boys began to laugh at the performance which annoyed the hawker, who suddenly left his seat and, rushing towards the donkey, seized him by one of his ears and twisted it severely, with the result that the donkey lost all interest in the object of his affections. At the head of the leading company of the regiment marched the company commander, a fine, well-built, handsome young officer, carrying himself with a swing. Just behind him marched the leading platoon sergeant. Scarcely had the incident of the donkey ended when a carriage drove by containing two handsome but well-painted ladies, one of whom bowed and smiled at the captain, who saluted. Instantly came a voice from the ranks, Twist his ear, Sergeant. Uh, that remained Pompey's favourite World War I story for the rest of his life. He often wrote to his wife Kate very affectionately. Uh, this one, uh, December 1914, been apart a couple of months, he's arrived at Egypt and he writes home and he says this. Now, kit old girly. Now, kit old girly. That's just about all the news. So what about a bit of lovemaking? Dear old girl, will you please cuddle up nice and close with your dear loving old, dear old loving arms about me and tell me how much you love me? Because you do love me, you know, something scandalous. Your dear old sweet face is smiling down on me as I write 
and the wee sweet bairnies too. It will be just about Christmas or New Year when you get this, and I do with all my heart wish you a very Merry Christmas and a bright and happy New Year. God bless you for all your sweetness and love to me. All my association with you has helped me to be a better and truer man, and I hope I shall deserve to have had you for a wife and to have had the happiness of being your husband. My little sweetheart, you are a wonderful little woman, and you don't know it the least little bit. There is no one that ever I met that has your sweet unselfishness and grace. They wrote a lot of letters like that during the war. What I'm reading out today is just a, a, a tiny proportion of what of the letters that are in the book. A lot of them to his wife like that. But the reason they're a part, of course, is because there's a war on. And he writes home at other times about other things like this. Uh, Pompey led his battalion into action at the Gallipoli landing. He was profoundly affected by the ordeal of his Essendon boys in his unit's first boat. He never forgot it, writing about it years later with lyrical intensity. What I'm going to read now, letter he wrote in May 1918, over three years after the Gallipoli landing. Um, and in May 1918, he had a lot on his mind. Climax of World War I, uh, very busy. But as this letter shows, still what happened over three years earlier on the first day uh, at Gallipoli was very front of mind for him. So imagine... Uh, what he's writing about is the Eston boys rowing themselves into the shore on the first morning. As they approached the shore, a machine gun opened, the bullets singing by. Soon they got the range. Men crumpled up where they sat, riddled through and through. The boat sides were pierced, the water squirted in, but the boat still swept on unswerving from her course. The rowers with their backs to the fire, never missing a stroke, albeit they felt each one an imagination in the small of the back, till they fell back dead and another snatched the oar from their dying grasp. A little red-headed laddie named MacArthur, scarcely more than 18, was shot through the femoral artery and the blood spurted from his thigh as the water squirted into the boat. But in a crimson jet instead of a silver one, a sergeant attempted to bind it up. It's no use, Sarge, he cried. I'm done. Yet he rode on until he swooned from loss of blood and a comrade took his place. The water gained in the boat and flowed around them, its blue turning a ghastly red with the blood of the wounded and dying. Still the hellish hail of fire continued. It did not cease when the boat grounded, but swept over them still, piercing the writhing bodies through and through. Oh, those leaden minutes of agony, how slowly... How dreadfully they passed by. Uh, I reaffirm that was written over three years after the events he was describing. Now Pompey was wounded himself at the first morning at the landing and took weeks to recover. After his return, his battalion was directed to occupy the front line at Steele's Post. Anyone heard of Steele's Post? Yeah, okay. Now for those who haven't, um, from... Anzac's perspective going to the going in towards the shore, there are three ridges in front of them. Steele's post is on the second ridge. It's a position there that we occupied uh, during the campaign in 1915, and it's in July 1915 
that Pompey is ordered to position his men there, and this is what he writes to Kate about it, about what happened there. The Turks got up two heavy howitzers, one firing high explosive and the other common shell, and for the past week our trenches have been a hell upon earth. The trenches were not trenches anymore, but mere gaping holes in the earth. Men were blown to pieces by shells or crushed to death by the masses of earth blown down upon them. But Katie, the boys are wonderful. They stick it out and the call for picks and shovels or stretcher bearers never fails to be answered, though often another shell sends these willing workers into eternity. I am proud of them all, Katie. But oh, my heart is breaking to see them. My hair is nearly quite grey with the worry and grief of it all to see them dying so. We are like men under sentence of death, for every day takes its toll of us. We have lost nearly 200 men since I last wrote to you. I am in excellent bodily health, but I am broken hearted at the loss of my brave boys. This is an awful war. So that was July 1915. Next month is August 1915, um, and Pompey and his men in August were involved in the ferocious fighting at Lone Pine. As I said earlier, four of his men were awarded the VC for what they did there. Pompey told a lawyer friend afterwards what it was like to be at Lone Pine. He's just an acquaintance, this chap, this, this uh, lawyer friend. Um, Pomp and he wrote to Pompey, Pompey's writing back. But again, as always, frank and forthright. He says, this is what it was like to be at Lone Pine. The weather was hot and the flies pestilential. When anyone speaks to you of the glory of war, picture to yourself a narrow line of trenches, two and sometimes three deep with bodies, and think two of your best friends, for that is what these boys become by long association with you, mangled and torn beyond description by the bombs and bloated and blackened by decay and crawling with maggots. Live amongst this for days. This is war, and such is glory, whatever the novelists may say. Now, after Lone Pine, when positions, because of the battle there, had changed somewhat, and new opportunities um, opened up for long-range sniping from the Australian positions. Um, during one of Pompey's regular frontline inspections, he happened to have a long-range shot himself to the distant Turkish positions. Um, this particular time, there was a private alongside, um, observing through a tele uh, observing through a periscope, and keen to please his colonel. I mean, you, you can imagine this guy's he's just arrived. He's a young reinforcement and he's very keen to, to impress Pompey. And uh, so Pompey has his long-range shot, and uh, this young bloke alongside looking through, he says, Got him, sir! But Pompey wasn't conned. Got him, be damned! The bullet's not halfway there! Have to take it easy, I'll lose my voice. <coughs> uh, after Gallipoli... Pompey was um, promoted to command the 15th Brigade and, as you will know, he and his men went to France. In July 1916, almost straight away, they became involved in the disaster of Fromel, which remains the worst 24 hours, the worst 24 hours in Australian history since European settlement. 5,533 Australian casualties in one night. That is, as, as I found when I had a bit of a dip into 
comparative casualty stats, you know, about 20 or so years ago, I've been saying in, ever since in contexts like this. That is, the Australian casualty toll at Framel was equivalent, I don't say more, you know, not greater, equivalent, about the same, casualty toll at Framel equivalent to the entire Australian casualties in the whole of the Boer War, the Korean War and the Vietnam War put together in one night at Framel. And one-third of those casualties at Fremel, 1,804, were in Pompey Elliott's brigade uh, that he toiled uh, immensely for months to make the best formation he could make. He could make it. And it was just smashed in this uh, stupid enterprise. Afterwards, he was scathing about what he described as the useless slaughter. He wrote a letter afterwards. <clears throat> God knows why this enterprise was ordered, apparently as a feint to distract the enemy's attention from the Somme area. Whatever the reason was, the division was hurled at the German trenches without anything like adequate preparation. The slaughter was dreadful, and at length we were ordered to retire. One of the best of my battalion commanders, Jeff McRae, was killed, and practically all my best officers are dead. I presume there was some plan at the back of the attack, but it is difficult to know what it was. One can only say it was an order. I trust those who gave the order may be made to realise their responsibility. Out of Jeff McRae's battalion, that's the 60th battalion, of nearly 1,000 men and 22 officers, at roll call next day, I could only get one officer and 106 men unwounded. Now, what followed from L for Pompey's men uh, was that terrible 1916-17 winter. This is what he wrote to Kate about that. My poor boys have been having a dreadful time. It rained very hard the last two days, and all today it has been freezing hard. I am very worried about it all. I have tried to work out ways of sending hot food up to the line. I have so much on my mind that I'm afraid I cannot write much of a letter even to you, Katie. It is dreadful that these poor boys have to suffer like this. Fancy a six-foot trench, half full of muddy slush, in which you have to live for three days at a time. During all that time, you cannot lay down to rest. You can only snatch a little sleep by cutting a nick in the bank and sitting in it with your feet propped up as best you can. It is either raining or freezing every night. And because of the combined effect of Fromel and the winter, in the last hours of 1916, Pompey's mood was bleak. I do miss poor Jeff McRae very much. He had a particularly bright, happy disposition. He, Cedric Permazel and the Henderson boys, both of them, and Jimmy Johnston, were all animated with a wonderful personal loyalty to myself. And now all are gone. I shall not look upon their like again, that is certain. If I myself should fall in France, I should like to be buried near poor Jeff. So he's very down at the end of 1916. But the thing about Pompey studying him through the war is, is this marked fluctuations in his morale and he bounced back relatively quickly uh, because at the end of winter, at the end of that terrible winter, the Germans carried out a strategic retreat to their heavily fortified Hindenburg line. You'll have heard of the Hindenburg line. Yeah. Now, two advanced guards were formed to harass the retreat in the AIF's sector. 
So we're not just letting the Germans fall back under their own steam um, uh, and let them do what they like. We're, we're making it as tough as we can for them. And Pompey was chosen to lead one of those two advanced guards in the AIF sector. Now, his formation proceeded to advance successfully across open country, such an uplifting contrast to the depressing boggy trenches they'd left behind them. And Pompey's own morale was similarly transformed. My word, Katie, my boys have been making a name for themselves. They far outreached the British and even the other Australians, and for three whole days we were absolutely forbidden to advance one step further to allow the others to catch up on each side of us. Even the Army Commander, General Goff, actually came along yesterday to see us, and several days before he sent his staff officer to take notes of my methods of attack, which were simply paralysing the old Bosch. Uh, throughout the war, he kept asking urgently for info about his kids. Updates, all the time. Weekly, fortnightly, all the time. Uh, here's one example of Squillions in mid-1917 to Kate. Tell me all about the wee people. Tell me everything about their hair and cheeks and chin and everything. I can never hear enough of them. In 1917, Pompey's brigade was involved at Bully Corps and later Polygon Wood. The Battle of Polygon Wood, you've heard of Polygon Wood? Yeah, yeah. Battle of Polygon Wood was intended to be a combined attack involving Australian and British formations alongside each other on the 26th of September 1917, 26th of September 1917, but the Germans had other ideas. The Germans knew we were going to attack soon, so they thought to disarrange our plans by attacking us, and after a fearful bombardment attacked at dawn of the 25th, that's, that's the day before, yeah, attacked at dawn of the 25th, and then came on in thousands. My boys of the 58th Battalion were in the front line, and despite dreadful casualties, stood firm, but the British Battalion alongside could not stand and they broke and ran. Now this German breakthrough alongside the 15th Brigade caused substantial problems for Pompey and his men, all the more because the 98th British Brigade, who was in charge of that British frontline group, the Middlesex Regiment it was, and way back the, the rearward headquarters, the 98th British Brigade, who was in charge of them, kept saying, kept claiming, that, that their men had regained their front line when they had not. And Pompey knew the score because his men were still there and they were telling Pompey back at his headquarters that they were being that their men, Pompey's men, were being shot at by Germans here. So he was well aware that the, the British, despite what the brigade was saying back at the Chateau, had not regained their front line. And after <coughs> the battle, Pompey wrote this remarkable document, his, his, his battle report about Polygon Wood. And I'll read, I'll read now one sentence from it, and I can assure you that it is not the typical uh, sort of sentence that you come across when you are looking at an official battle report. No reliable information whatever could be got from the 98th Brigade as to the situation on their front or even as to the situation of their troops. In other words, they didn't have a clue. Uh, and nevertheless, Pompey's superiors, perhaps influenced by the wrong 
information they were getting, the, the superiors further back from brigade headquarters, perhaps influenced by the wrong info they were getting from the 98th, insisted that the planned attack on the 26th had to proceed, even though the Germans had comprehensively disrupted the arrangements. Now, Pompey, as he wrote at the time, felt appalled at the task as he had to proceed to overhaul the arrangements hastily overnight during the intervening night. And in particular, he was unconvinced by the assurances he was given that the British would move forward during the night, position themselves alongside his men, and then proceed to advance alongside them in the battle proper, starting on the 26th. And Pompey's scepticism about that was vindicated after the attack began and his men began their advance. Writing to Kate. Suddenly the mist lifted and it was seen that the British had not come on at all and that instead there was a quickly opening gap nearly a mile deep on our right. Now this caused further immense difficulties for Pompey and his brigade and while he was directing this complex battle he received distressing news. I heard that my brother George had been mortally wounded. He had been struck by a fragment of a shell on the head and back and could not recover. Uh, George Elliott was, uh, had graduated from Melbourne Uni as a doctor. He was serving as the doctor of a battalion not far away. Um, George, by the way, also um, was a hotshot footballer. He'd, he'd captained his, his VFL team uh, and had represented Victoria at football. So he's a serious, um, versatile talent. Is George Elliott, but he's dying at Polygonwood. They brought the news to me when I was tied to my office directing the fight and I could not go to him, though they said he was dying. I hope never to have such an experience again. The effort to concentrate my thoughts on the task of defeating the enemy as the messages came through, revealing each move and the changing phases of the battle to me, seemed, a time, seemed as time went on to turn me into stone. And half the time I was like a man sleepwalking. Moreover, during the battle... Pompey also received alarming news about his solicitor's practice back in Melbourne. Same battle, Polygon Wood. He hears, he hears this news. Ah, oh, Katie, as if my other troubles were not enough. I was told that Mr Roberts has been speculating and lost his money and has been making me liable through the partnership for thousands and pounds of his debts. About 5,000 pounds altogether. Now, I think that's possibly about half a mil today. About 5,000 pounds altogether. Try not to worry, darling. It is a bitter blow to me. I think I could have the villain put in jail, but it would only cause a scandal and probably ruin the business without releasing me from debt in the slightest. Now, remarkably, despite these immense personal shocks, yeah, Brother George, Solicitor's practice back home. Pompey's dynamic leadership, which included a famous frontline visit that sorted out the confusion and revived the attacking impetus, paved the way for an outstanding victory at Polygon Wood as the men he led secured his brigade's objectives and those of the British alongside as well. We have had a wonderful battle and a wonderful victory. My boys have simply covered themselves with glory. 
Many, many have fallen, but we have in this fight stamped our fame on a higher pinnacle than ever. General Plumer says, my boys saved the whole British army. Now, Pompey was exhausted after Wood, but he was sufficiently perturbed about something Kate had mentioned in a recent letter to scrawl this hasty note to his five-year-old son. So he's absolutely buggered, drained after Wood, understandably, says to Kate, I don't even feel like writing to you, darling, but there was something she'd mentioned that he had to address as a matter of the utmost urgency. My dear little laddie, Mum has been telling me that you were so sorry for being naughty that you wished you were a little girl like your sister. But if you ever changed to a little girl, Didar and Mum would not have any little boy at all. And Mum and Didar would be dreadfully sad if they had no dear wee mischiefy thing like our laddie. Dear little chap, Mum and Didar love you so much that they don't mind very much when you were naughty. Of course Mum has to scold you, because if she didn't you wouldn't know what was naughty and wrong to do. Didar was sad when he heard that the little lad wanted to be changed to a girl. He loves his little laddie so much that he was sorry the poor little chap was not happy. So don't you worry a bit, old chap. You just try your best to be good, and if you forget sometimes and mum has to spank you, just be a soldier and try not to cry very much, and you will know that mum and Didar love you just the same even when they spank you. Spanking isn't so bad if you feel quite sure that dear old mum loves you just always the same. Dear little laddie, I wish I was with you now to take you up on my knee and comfort you and tell you Mum and Dida will always love you. Uh, superb letters to both his kids. I've done two to Neil. He wrote just as um, marvellously to Violet as well. Now Pompey proceeded to compile this, as I've referred to earlier, typically frank and forthright battle report about Polygon Wood only to find it suppressed by his British Corps commander. It showed some of the British troops up and some of their generals too, and Birdwood ordered all the copies of it destroyed. It was a pity, as I'd taken great pains to get the truth of it, but you see it is necessary that disasters should be concealed and hushed up. It does not pay to tell the truth, as I know to my cost. However, a copy, what one copy, of this controversial report survived. Now, when I became aware of this, I asked to see it at the Australian War Memorial, only to be told that it was locked in a safe and accessible to no one. This was about 1982, still rigorously suppressed 65 years on. Eventually, though, I was allowed to see it, which may or may not be related to the possible Pompey-like tantrum that I unveiled, unleashed at the time, which may have influenced them to change their policy. But anyway, that, that, that if I hadn't, maybe it'd still be locked away in the safe. At the end of 1917, Pompey was feeling very melancholy, just like the end of 1916. Here it's the last day of this sad old year, 1917. I think it has held more of sadness and disappointment than any other year of my life. I am particularly in the blues today. It is bitterly cold and there's nearly a couple of feet of snow on the ground. There have been no home letters for more than a month. Now, having no news, I don't know what position my business is in with Roberts and it is very worrying. 
It is very sad not getting any letters. Katie, I am big heap lonely for you. Now, again, morale swings. Again, he bounced back relatively quickly because the Germans launched a massive onslaught on the 21st of March, 1918. The British were driven back no less than 40, mi 40 miles and there was widespread concern that the war might be lost. Pompey sensed correctly that this was the climax of the war and all his drive and verve returned as the Australians were rushed to the rescue. Australians were influencing the destiny of the world. Key point here, Australians were influencing the destiny of the world in 1918 more than any other year before or since and Pompey and his brigade were front and centre in these dramatic events as his letters at the time showed. The AIF have hitherto accomplished nothing to be compared in importance with the work they have in hand just now. I was never so proud of being an Australian as I am today. The gallant bearing and joyous spirit of the men at the prospect of a fight thrills you through and through. You simply cannot despair or be downhearted, whatever the odds against you. When you feel their spirits rising, the more the danger seems to threaten. It is glorious indeed to be with them. Now, during this crisis, when Australian formations are being rushed hither and thither to um, fill the dangerous vacuums in the British defences. During this crisis, Pompey and his brigade were directed to occupy the village of Hedoville. Anyone heard of Hedoville? Hedoville. Uh, his men marched all night to get there, cold and rainy night, all night to get there, but found it occupied, to their surprise, by a detachment of British officers and men. They were told it was to be it was vacant. Now, even though they were tired and wet. Pompey uh, uh, conceded that he would keep his men outside in the rain for hours to enable this British fragment to find out where they were to go. And then he returned to the Hedoville Chateau at midday and spoke to the British staff officer there who was in charge of them. And then he wrote to Kate a letter afterwards about his conversation with this British staff officer. He told me that his division had moved. And until he got orders from them as to where he was to go, he could not move. I asked him where his division was. He did not know. I asked, had he sent anyone out to find where it was? No. I then saw that the blighter had no intention to move, that they were very comfortable there and didn't want to move, and would take mighty fine care they didn't get orders. So I told him right there and then a few things I'd found out about his division and its fighting and running powers and wound up by informing him that unless he and his officers and men were clear of the village by two o'clock, I would send in an escort of my own men and march them out by force as prisoners. He got a nasty shock and was out of the village by the time fixed. He then had the hide to complain to his division of the way I had treated him. In reply, I let off some more steam and asked that a court of inquiry should investigate the conduct of the British officers and men in the village who'd looted the whole place, including the chateau. That startled them a bit, and the matter was dropped like a hot spud. In April 1918, shortly after the Hedoville incident, 
the Germans attacked and captured the tactically vital town of Villaretina from the British. Pompey and his brigade were nearby, and Pompey was itching to launch a counterattack. His brigade's in reserve at that time. British had been told to safeguard Villaspret. They're driven out. Pompey is itching to launch a counterattack. This is what he wrote about Villaspret afterwards. I submitted the plan for recapture of a town. I was told not to bother as the British Corps concerned were doing it themselves and it was out of my area. So for 14 hours we delayed whilst the Bosch strengthened his position. Eventually I was solemnly handed over to the British Corps concerned together with another Australian brigade. No means of communication with each other was provided. By this time it was pitch dark and raining and we were launched and our meeting place fixed within the enemy's lines and we were left to find each other. Everyone expected the whole thing to fail, but something desperate had to be done to restore the situation. In point of fact, it was not nearly as desperate as it looked, for I had taken advantage of those 14 hours delay to have all my officers and some of the men thoroughly reconnoitre the ground actually during the fight. For the moment the German attack started, I assumed that the British Corps would be defeated. Now, this counterattack, as you will be aware, I'm sure, proved a stunning success. Birdwood and the French general said that nothing like it had been done in the war. Birdwood really tried to be nice to me yesterday when he came round about the splendid way my boys had behaved but he rather looked as if I'd made him swallow a bit of green apple. I wore my old Australian jacket and looked as disreputable as I could too. It's a joke on these spick and span soldiers to show them that Australians have a few brains sometimes. That's, that's the second last excerpt in the talk. Thank you very much. You've been very patient. Last one coming. Last one coming. And... The prelude to that one is that soon after Villers-Brett, three Australian divisional commands became vacant. So, recap, Pompey, 7th Battalion at Gallipoli, 15th Brigade of the Western Front. He's been doing it well for two years. Three vacancies opened up at the next level, straight after the Villers-Brett triumph, divisional command. Pompey and his admirers felt he had strong claims to be promoted, but he was overlooked for all three. He was bitterly disappointed and aggrieved and had an argument about it with Birdwood's senior staff officer, General Brudenall White. Anyone heard of General yep, General Brudenall White? Yes. Now, then he wrote to Kate uh, describing what had happened in the argument. And this is the last one. I'll finish with this. White said General Birdwood would not promote me. I asked why and pointed to my services. The Bapaim Advance, which is now lectured on as a classic example of advanced guard, on the Bully Court Show, on the Polygon Wood Show, and lastly on this Villa Bretina stunt, which is supposed to be the finest thing the Anzacs have ever done in the war, and some say the finest thing done in the war at all, and Lone Pine too. He admitted all that and said they had no general braver or more capable in the AIF no general braver or more capable than the AIF, but I suffered from lack of control of judgment. I pressed him to say what he meant, and he, would, he could only say that I break out like a volcano if things don't go just as I want them. 
He mentioned about the row I had with Birdwood in Egypt. Also the other row in Egypt when they wouldn't give my men water and I threatened to march them back into town to get it. And then at Fromel, when the British didn't advance and my men got cut to pieces, I kicked up a row and got a general sacked and caused a lot of unpleasantness. Then at Polygon Wood, when my big report exposed the Tommy's regiments who bolted and left my 58th boys to fight alone. The same almost at Bully Corps, the same down here. Then the row I had with a young staff officer who kept all my brigade out in the rain until it suited him to get up at about 10am in the morning after we'd marched all night. Then when we got down here, I found British officers stealing champagne wholesale and I arrested them and threatened to shoot them if it did not stop, for I could not stop my men stealing wine if the officers would persist. Now that seems to have led to a row. Now, would you believe it possible that they are now dragging all this up to show I am not fit for a higher job? It is amazing and incredible. I should have thought that taking this in conjunction with my fighting powers, which he admits are not approachable, it would have proved that I was the very man for the job. But there you are, Katie. I have done only my duty, as my men will testify for always. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Words in Winter podcast. Words in Winter is a literary festival that runs every year in the cold winter months of August in Dalesford, Victoria, Australia. If you'd like to find out more about the festival, please go to wordsinwinter.com. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find them at wordsinwinter.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs>